Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we get stuck into what's happening in British politics and a bit of American politics, I just want to tell you about a new podcast from the Times all about what's happening on the west coast of America, and in particular Silicon Valley. The Pivot is presented by Danny Forston, who's been the West Coast correspondent of the Sunday Times since the beginning of 2017, covering all things technology in Silicon Valley. He's going to paint a picture of what goes on in Silicon Valley, how it became the most important driver of tech and society on the planet, and where the people who run it are planning on going next. Just search for The Pivot wherever you listen to podcasts. Right down to this week's episode of Red Box. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by David Ivanovich, Times columnist, who's going to try to explain what's going on inside the Labour Party. Columnist Hugo Rifkin tries to explain what's going on in the Tory party. But first, Catherine Philp, diplomatic correspondent of the Times, tries to explain what on earth is going on in the White House. Well, Downing Street has said that the British ambassador to the United States has the Prime Minister's full support after Donald Trump said he would no longer work with him. Mr Trump took to Twitter to vent following the leaks of unflattering memos written by the ambassador, Sir Kim Derrick, who called the Trump administration dysfunctional and inept. But should the US president choose the British ambassador? So, Catherine, we did a whole special last week on uh, US politics. I thought, well, that'll do for now. And then the <laughs> the president's capacity to uh, keep generating news, although actually it's not strictly speaking his fault that these diplomatic cables have come out um, from Kim Derrick. I suppose first, let's first of all con- concentrate on the on the on what was in the cables, because if being the most prominent British ambassador around the world involves what appears to be writing emails stating the bleeding obvious. I think we could all have a go at doing that. <laughs> there wasn't any great surprise in no. what Kim Derrick had to say about the White House. Uh, correct. But, um, I mean, that's probably, in a sense, that's a good thing because it means he's got, you know, he, he's, he seems to have uh, the White House down to a T and it's sort of the kind of stories that we've heard from people who've left the administration who've written books about it or people who've tried to do that kind of dive into it so yeah it's not astonishing it's just uh, embarrassing that it becomes public 
under his name. And so just because you deal with diplomats and mm. ambassadors all the time, what does an ambassador do all day? <laughs> Is it just reading the papers and then writing an email? Because I'll be honest, that's my, that's my job. I just do mine at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Um, no, there's a bit more to it than that. I mean, they would they would be meeting lots of people who would have insights that they would uh, glean. I mean, a lot of it is also done by the people they work with, their political section, for example. You t- there's a lot of different people who have different um, contacts within an administration and uh, they would be sort of hoovering up all that information that comes to them from those people too. Um, there's obviously a very public side to what they do as well. Um it is his job also to write these cables, as we still refer to them, or even though they're just emails, um, back to headquarters to, you know, talk about how that administration functions and, and how it works with Britain. So, Catherine, now I suppose we should just touch on how we think these came out, mm. because uh, in a way the leak is more interesting than the contents of them, and the contents of them seems to be a just a common sense statement of the bleeding obvious um so how do we think they came out yeah i mean this is the killer question i think we should um look at the journalist to whom they were leaked isabel oakshot is uh, certainly um has a particular political slant and she's a brexiteer she's close to um aaron banks and nigel farage we may recall that um nigel farage quite quite fancied that post himself and I think even Trump endorsed him as uh, a a potential ambassador to uh, Washington. So it's possible that uh, it was someone who, uh, you know, is is pro-Brexit. The the other uh, dimension that's been looked at is, is... that it could have been a foreign hack. Um, I mean, I think Isabel Oakshaw is suggesting it's not that complicated. Um, but it's hard to see why what anyone thought that they could help um, by doing this. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not a particularly useful thing to do, whatever side of the political um, divide you're on. And Hugo, this is a foreign hack. Then there's a chance they've got some much better stuff it's, other than... It's not, it's not a foreign emails. hack, I don't, I, I don't think. Look, it's... Um, I, re- I read about this, this this morning in my column and I said I'm very, very reluctant to speculate on this kind of stuff. But while not speculating, we can observe that Oakshot has worked a lot with Banks and Farage. We can observe that Farage and Darragh have a long history of bad blood and hate each other, hated each other in Brussels for years. Uh, Andy Wigmore, uh, uh, Aaron Banks' monkey, was tweeting the other day <laughs> about how, um, how Farage had once physically thrown Darragh out of his office, and, and Farage has been sounding off about Darragh since then. We can also observe that, yes, there's been this nonsense about how, how Farage could be the ambassador, but Farage has been making a lot of noise lately about how he's going to lead trade delegations to Washington and we also know that the foreign office has been deeply sceptical of that because they think it's mad balls and you put all that together and you wonder why it is that this journalist who's very friendly to Nigel Farage has knifed the British ambassador God knows very difficult <laughs> it's difficult to fathom I mean, that doesn't you're, you're that, right not to speculate yeah loath to um, I mean that doesn't admittedly tell you where they came from no, but at least it does draw that, yes, it's worth, because it, what is unusual in the in this story is it was a front page story in the Mail on Sunday, not written by somebody who works at the Mail on Sunday. Yeah. Isabel Oakeshott is, I mean, is, I suppose, technically a journalist, and uh, <laughs> had, but her most recent work was, uh, you know, she goes through a book, I think, for Aaron Banks, or she was involved yep. in a book for Aaron she's Banks. A, she's also worked a lot with, Ash, with, with, with Lord Ashcroft, Ashcroft and she wrote the book yep. about David Cameron, what he did and didn't do with a pig. So yeah. that's her mm-hmm. um, her. Back in catalog, um, <laughs> David. What do you make of it? Should we be worried by 
these things leaking? Does it matter who our man in Washington is? Actually, I'm less exercised about the leak than some people are, um, not least because when WikiLeaks leaked uh, several zillion uh, White House and other diplomatic cables, though there were some effects in certain sorts of places, the, the overall effect was to convince people only that uh, actually the Americans were diplomatically quite sensible. Um, and uh, it was very disappointing for conspiracy theorists really disappointing for conspiracy theorists suspiciously disappointing so I'm actually and and, and, and as both and as both Hugo and and Catherine have said um, there was nothing in those cables which you would have surprised in fact it would have surprised you enormously if the lead cables had written actually we found Trump to be an incredibly well organised disciplined person who is quite different from his the tweets what his tweets suggest um so i'm relaxed about that uh, what obviously like everybody else i'm much more worried about is whether or not the presidential response um uh, and also the response in in throwing effectively throwing the ambassador out of a reception so you can't go to a reception with somebody from dubai which is apparently the kind of thing that you like to do if you're uh, <laughs> if you're a diplomat uh, is going to become some or other the way in which these things are now handled from now on whether people are going to turn around in the future and say well donald trump did it that way so we will behave uh, in this fashion because to say that his tweets have been <coughs> Uh, bizarre, undiplomatic, incredibly unhelpful, uh, and so on, is a, is a kind of understatement. And we take these things for granted now. That's Donald Trump, that's what he does. But if you're a kind of, uh, you know, populist statesman in some other kind of country, you'd look at this and think, yeah, you know, if people are going to r- r- ride this, maybe this is the way we should do things in future. And Catherine, so what does this mean then for, I mean, so Kim Dowick was supposed to be moving on in January anyway. Mm. Does... Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt, do they keep him there to show that they are uh, in charge and the US president doesn't get to pick and choose the ambassadors? Do they let him go in January anyway, as planned, and hope that everyone forgets by then? Or do they react to uh, Donald Trump and think, well, we need to keep him on side for this tremendous best trade deal in history that we're going to get with the US (laughs) and sort of try to placate him? Uh, and oust Sir Kim Dowick as a sort of first job this summer? Um, My advice, (laughs) I don't know what they're going to do, my advice would be to keep him in post until he goes anyway. It's it's pretty soon. Um, So the whole thing goes away. These cycles of ambassadors are quite rigid. You you do four years in the job and you move on. Um, I'm extremely sceptical about this this trade deal anyway. So uh, I think there's much bigger problems with that. Than um, than Kim Derrick being in the seat, and presumably there's a big risk that what happens is that uh, if you, if they did remove him and replace him with someone else, give it a couple of months, and Donald Trump won't like them either. Won't like that person. Well, not if they keep um, yeah exposing <laughs> this stuff. I actually thought the most interesting thing to come out of the leak was um, the suspicion that Donald Trump lied about. Um, strikes on Iran. Mm. If that everything else was quite sort of boilerplate, as you say, but that, that if true, that is that is interesting, and and that will have irritated him to have that out there. No, I mean it, it's, it's sort of it's almost like surprise, surprise. But Trump, for, for what he presumably wants, Trump went too far because the, the British government can't possibly can't possibly sack an ambassador after this, particularly because he didn't actually do anything wrong. So they can't possibly remove him. They probably can't even accept his resignation because that becomes this sort of massive diplomatic humiliation. So really, through through Trump's 
mad tweets as ever. He's kind of trapped us in this kind of stasis where we just need to sit there and wait for it to play out. Yeah, if, yeah, if there was a plan, yeah. Trump has blown it. Yeah, is the bottom line. Um, so it's worth pointing out that in Kim Derrick's uh, one of his emails, he talked about how we don't really believe this administration is going to become substantially more normal, less dysfunctional, less unpredictable, less faction-ridden, uh, less diplomatically clumsy and inept. Uh, and you, you can't help thinking that he could have thought that was about what was going on in the UK, yeah. both in the Tory party or indeed in the Labour party. So let's move on. Let's move on. We'll deal with the Labour party first. We'll come to the Tory party to sec. Uh, let's move on and talk about the Labour party. This is David Ivanovich. Oh, there's nothing I like better than a sliding segue. Um, <laughs> the Corbyn camp. As Lembit Opic said once, I think. There's imagery for you. The Corbyn camp, from its tame commentators to its momentum activists, are desperately trying to find a way of anticipating tomorrow's panorama programme on Labour's anti-Semitism problem. They're part deflecting, what about Islamophobia in the Tory party? Um, they're part threatening, why are we paying the BBC licence fee money in order to do this? And part denying, well, what's so great about this anyway? And at the same time, they're facing a war with their own former far-left allies who are campaigning on behalf of the disciplined MP, that is, he's subject to discipline rather than he's disciplined, Chris Williamson. All is not red rosy in the garden. And David, while we're uh, sitting here in the studio recording, on the TV above your head, there is breaking news, apparently, that Jeremy Corbyn is saying that Labour would campaign for Remain over No Deal. And I can't work out if that's a major development or not. <laughs> it's, a, it's another tiny step towards something which is slightly more... It, yeah, it's... Um, uh, firstly, it's a deflection. Um... Uh, really, because actually it doesn't take you any further than the position he's always been in, Royal has occupied for some time. There's never been any doubt that he would, that Labour would go for Remain rather than No Deal. But what they would prefer is a Labour bre jobs first Brexit, which only they have the kind of, etc, 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 etc they do this and have the referendum as the last resort and so on. So it's an attempt to kind of suggest to people that they've moved in a big way when actually that formulation doesn't take you on at all. And it will have been cleverly crafted, one imagines, by the very same people in the leader's office who uh, everybody is now trying to finger as the bad people who if only Jeremy got rid of them then we would be on a, you know, trajectory to the sunlit uplands. This is the four M's. There's a, a brilliant feature a couple of weeks ago in the Times by Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson on basically what's going on in, inside Team Corbyn. So the four M's are, there's a good pub quiz question, this, Seamus Milne, who's the spin doctor, Carrie Murphy's the chief of staff, Len McCluskey, the head of Unite, and Andrew Murray, whose job is just advisor or something to... Yeah, to and who his chief, <laughs> his chief of staff <laughs> is Peter McCluskey. Tennis player as well. Uh, the, the criticism is, and actually I thought one of the most interesting things in their feature was the parallel that was drawn with Theresa May, with Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill, that essentially Jeremy Corbyn has become a puppet, they keep him in a corner and they just tell him what's going on, and he says, what, what do people really want to do about Brexit? Yeah. And they just bring in people who say... Get on with Brexit. And yeah, I mean, it's John a bit like Donald and Emily Thornberry are kept out. Theresa May's fixation on immigration reasons was not uh, kind of created by Nick Timothy uh, and so on. And Jeremy Corbyn's position on Brexit and on the EU was not constructed by Seamus Milne. I mean, uh, one of the things which is immensely frustrating is when Corbyn turns out to be exactly what you've told people he's been for 40 years, they all say, oh, it's astonishing. Why didn't everybody <laughs> tell us? Um, and that's a kind of repeated pattern that you have a kind of feeling you may see when Boris Johnson inherits the earth. Um, and people turn around and say... Well, somebody should have told us. They should have said. <laughs> Why did nobody say he was all over the shop and not a big details man? And yeah, um, does it? Let's move on and talk about the anti-Semitism stuff. 
Do we think that the Panorama programme is actually going to shift the dial? When you're right, to some extent, it's just for people who think that Jeremy Corbyn has an anti-Semitism problem, they already think that. And for the people who are utterly convinced that St. Jeremy does not. Well, I, I have a feeling that some of this, at uh, this time, the devil will lie in the detail. I mean, if it is established, let's say, that the leader's office, uh, quite probably with the connivance and knowledge of the leader himself, actually did intervene in a big way to kind of save some of the miscreants from the full wrath of uh, 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 of, of Labour's uh, rulemaking. Um, that could be tricky. I mean, that could genuinely be tricky. And it's worth remembering that what you might call the Watsonites and, and the large majority of, of Labour MPs who are convinced that Jeremy Corbyn would make only a marginally more disastrous MP, uh, Prime Minister than Boris Johnson um, are waiting for the moment when they go into full revolt. I mean... They wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And I'm told that they wanted to let this latest row play over, play through before they act. And that's always their situation, you know, being about to act. It could be the trigger. It could be the trigger that actually makes them do something. They've got enough excuse to say, look, for God's sake, how much more proof do you need? I, I, I disagree, actually, with David on that. I think um, the only the only way it would be the trigger to be anything is if you actually had an email from Corbyn that said bloody Jews in it. You know, I think, um, I mean... The, the, even then, you get the even, sense that they would find then. a way. I mean, but, given that his history already... Is... But, I mean, but the, the, the internal narrative there is, for us, it's like Labour obviously has this anti-Semitism problem and is obviously failing to deal with it. Inside the bunker, they don't think, they don't really think they have an anti-Semitism problem. Or rather, they think we are the anti-Semitism problem. They think their anti-Semitism problem is that people keep calling them anti-Semitic. They don't accept the first principle that their that their general politics of of anti, whatever anti-imperialism bollocks has led them to a to a state generally where they where they are at, at best blind to anti-Semitism. They don't accept that first principle because they don't accept that first principle. They don't accept that they're that, that they are insufficiently disciplining people who exp, who express anti-Semitic views because they don't think they are anti-Semitic views. And so every bit of the process, they are they are defensive in in that regard. So. If you show that members of Corbyn's inner team have covered up for people, even we're talking even quite far down the spectrum, people who have said that what for many people are, are disgusting, shocking, outrageous things, that core bit of Corbyn support is going to be, well, they're not disgusting, shocking, outrageous uh, uh, things, so no wonder they supported them. They, I agree. I don't want to cut across what Catherine's going to say, but uh, just very briefly, <laughs> I, I don't disagree with that. But the question is, what's a trigger on the Watsonites? But um, I mean, what becomes, like what becomes the what I mean, becomes the point? All of a sudden, a trigger. I mean, they've had they've, they've, had, they've had years of this. You <laughs> all know, of a sudden, a trigger. All of a sudden, oi, a trigger. <laughs> I can't yeah. remember. Was it last summer or the one before that was entirely dominated by a row of anti-Semitism? Maybe it was both. But I mean, even if even if this entire summer was once again dogged by a row of anti-Semitism and a row over Brexit, you do wonder if why would it be this summer is the one that Tom Watson goes over the top? Well, because, because I mean. Uh, well, that's. I mean, that is obviously a very, very, uh, very good question. Why, because why is they're different. Because they're getting Jewish yeah. joke. Never yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Because they're getting because they're getting closer and closer to the edge. Uh, they're getting closer and closer to the to, to the moment of absolute decision, and they know it. Their nightmare is that they go into an election whenever it's called, having to go onto the doorsteps and perjuring themselves that Jeremy Corbyn is going to make a decent prime minister. But they did that last time. They don't uh, care. They did, but in a different, in a, in a kind of slightly different, in a, actually, in a very different context. Text. And that's the crucial difference in the Catherine that last time nobody thought that Jeremy Corbyn was going to be even Jeremy Corbyn didn't really think he was going to be prime minister. He, he was as shocked as everyone uh, as everyone else how close he came. Whereas this time round, it would be different. It would be different, and I know quite a few um, Labour MPs who uh, 
would be going around canvassing thinking, oh my God, you know, I, I could actually be putting this guy in number 10 and, and a lot of them do not feel very comfortable about that. Yeah, but it, it's interesting to me that this sort of self-deception in Labour over anti-Semitism, where it, because they they, uh, what was it? they say Jeremy Corbyn's fought against racism all his life, therefore he can't be an anti-Semite, and I think that's just the that's the goal as they see it through, and they they don't see that it's actually a different thing. It's a different kind of hatred and one that they're. Well, they, actually, they I'd say problem. it isn't a different... They think it's a different kind, but it isn't. It's racism. It's just because it's got a different name, they are able I, to parcel it off. I suppose. But, I mean, I, you could say that, like, classic racism is, is like, is it sort of goes treating people down. You, you know, it's, you think someone's lower than you, whereas anti-Semitism is quite often thinking people are superior to you. Um, and I think that that's why they think it's OK somehow, or they don't think it's racism. I think does crucially... Keep, does that make this, sense to you? Uh, it, it, it does, although it creates a lovely image um, in my mind, which is uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, really, in which it, what happens is... Actually, actually, is in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. People actually do, in the end, come and beg you to rule them. Actually, I've just remembered. Um, so, actually, it does fit in with a yeah. kind of very old kind of classic meme as developed by the Russian Secret Service in the 1890s. And... Um, Last week we had a poll, a uh, YouGov poll for the Times, which had Labour on 18%, the lowest they'd been ever in a YouGov poll. There was only one other example of them being that low going back sort of 30 years or something from Ipsos Moy. And uh, the instant reaction from uh, Labour supporters was, oh, yeah, but Salvation have got them on 22, as if that was a, <laughs> a proof of some you know, huge, vast difference in, in methodology. Um, and also the last time they were that low, Je- uh, Gordon Brown was Prime Minister... Uh, it was coming off the back of uh, MPs' expenses, uh, the financial crisis, and a recession, and we were about to go into a general election after Labour being in government for 13 years. None of those things are currently... All the crisis... Jeremy Corbyn is gripped by several different crises, but they were all of his own making. You're right, but I, I just want to point out one other thing, which I put in the, um, in, in the introduction, which is they're also involved, the far left, in an absolutely bitter civil war at the moment, which has grown up over Chris Williamson MP. This is mm. not a joke. Uh, and so they even got one of these kind of big round letter, round-robin <laughs> letters from all the people who normally support Jeremy Corbyn, absolutely condemning in terms the treatment of Chris Williamson, demanding his, his reinstatement. Now, this is going through the, the left-wing constituency party, so not only are they dealing with the charges of anti-Semitism that likely come out from the Panorama programme and, so and the Watsonites, but they have also got the... and I, Pandora's box comes to mind, you know. They opened Pandora's box and these things all floated back, came back into the party and so on, and now they've got them there and now they are biting them in turn. Well, and, and, that's, and that's not all of this, because they've also got this, uh, the kind of, the, I guess, the, young, the younger demographic. I forget who it was. Who it was a long time ago who divided up divided up Labour these days between the Lennonites and the John Lennonites? But the, <laughs> basically, the, 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 the John Lennonites, the younger group, the sort of momentum-based younger ones, mm-hmm. um, are also beginning to come to terms with the fact that actually Jeremy Corbyn isn't very good at this thing that they call Corbynism. Mm. You know, there's this massive gulp between Corbyn and Corbynism, and the, so that's a whole the third momentum, front that's coming against the, old Jeremy Corbyn, Glastonbury crowd. All that, yeah, yeah all, all that is is like I mean, it's a it's a coherent and quite attractive political identity, and it turns out that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have it. And enter Rebecca <laughs> you know. Long Bailey as the saviour. <laughs> well, that is the question. So, is there a point at which Jeremy Corbyn were Jeremy Corbyn to suddenly be replaced? Does that solve Labour's? 
problems and do they end up being 20 points and end the polls as you might expect an opposition to be now it depends who buy right i mean they have when when he when he goes do you have this i mean you have this almighty fight but just with you have you have the same fight as before but just with a new cast you have the long baileys on one side you have people like jess phillips and tom watson himself coming on the other side and the membership sort of he just does it all again really but then, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk that the membership is dropping sharply that you know that there were some shadow cabinets is still using this phrase about being almost 600,000 and nobody thinks there's anything like that it might even be close to 400,000 which is still a huge still number huge. double more than any other party it'll be interesting to see how it pans out uh, and I'm sure it's an issue that we will return to because we end up talking about it most weeks some segues are better than others aren't they? <laughs> that, that was definitely one of your lamest <laughs> he's messed this one up that one should have been easy <laughs> time will tell <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you've brought up uh, members there, uh, Hugo, because we'll we'll move on from talking about the Labour membership to the Tory membership in a moment. We'll be back after this short break. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly. I'm joining the studio by David Ivanovich, Catherine Philp, and this is Hugo Rifkin. With the help of YouGov, Dispatches on Channel 4 has been investigating the Conservative membership. A lot of people have mentioned how remarkable it is that 160,000 self-selecting people will be choosing the next Prime Minister. Perhaps it's even more remarkable, though, that we know nothing about them, that it takes a journalistic investigation to establish who they even are and what they think. With a system devolved by constituency and region, does the Conservative Party even truly know who they have on their lists? And if not, is that okay? Well, the interesting thing, having spoken to senior people at Tory HQ, I don't get the feeling they do know who. They know that more of the growth has been amongst young people and women, they say. But I don't get the feeling they've got a sort of copper-bottomed demographic breakdown of who are these people who are choosing the no i mean minister. so the the dispatches report which was the the night before we were recording this was was sort of remarkable and disturbing and we'll hopefully we'll come to that in a minute but what sparked this for me was a rumor i heard not nothing more than a rumor that there are these days approaching 30,000 scottish conservatives that ruth davidson took over the party with 10,000 massive membership drive 30,000 don't know if this is true but it's been floating around in kind of scottish political circles if that is true that means 20% of the Conservative electorate voting for the next the next leader are in Scotland, which is remarkable because you've only got 8% of the population in Scotland. And if that is true, it's also a dynamic that is just has not been discussed in terms of, of this leadership election at all. Might be true, might not be true. We, we, have no, we have no idea, we have no way of finding out. The party's not inclined to share its figures in any great details. Uh, it's sort of bizarre. And I'm supposed to YouGov about this. So the Times has commissioned several YouGov polls of Tory members. And in the past, they've, you know, they were pretty... Good with the Labour Party membership polling. 
And how it works is they ask, they're constantly polling all the time. It's actually to do with like which washing powder do you like and all that sort of thing. So they're asking questions all the time of the panellists. And very so often they'll ask, are you a member of any of these? And it'll be National Trust, the AA, mm. Tory Party, you know, dogging societies or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure what the overlap is between all four. And um, and then so then they can go back to people who have previously said they're members of the Tory Party long before it comes mm-hmm. up as a thing of the news and asking these questions but they do say the big problem they've got is they can poll 800 900 people who are on their books as saying they're toy party members but they don't know the the national figure that they are waiting against so unlike if they have too many men that yeah. normally answer one of their voting attention polls they can reweight it to match the, sure. the proportion of men in the country but if all the people responding to the polls are men in their 50s who live in Cornwall yeah they don't know how to Reweight it for the rest of the country. So it could be that all of the young people who've joined in Scotland aren't on YouGov's panel, so aren't being picked up. I mean, they're probably all going to vote for Boris Johnson anyway, but it's still remarkable. The, to, the Dispatchers programme last night, just as a, as a snapshot of of who they found the Tories to be, of who YouGov found the Tories to be, it sort of it wasn't. It was sort of shocking without being surprising. I think the the, the I mean there was a there were ninety seven percent white, which was not surprising. There were seventy seventy one percent male, which is also not surprising. Um, the the remarkable thing, the headline figure was that fifty six percent of party members agreed that Islam was a threat to the British way of life. Which with the sort of rolling Tory battles on Islamophobia, which are the counterpoint of of Labour's trouble, troubles over anti semitism. Um, I mean that's that's not going to go away. That's that's kind of huge. That's um. Because that's not people saying that there are aspects of religion that conflict with British secularism, which an awful lot of people think. That's people who are saying that Islam is in conflict with the British way of life. And that's I, the, that's I the saw that, and people were very cross about it. And I wondered, if you'd polled that for the whole country, would you have had a radically different response? Is the public that's attitude towards Islam such that most people don't know very much about it, and when yeah. they do, it's often reported in the context of terrorism and extremism. Yeah. I don't know if the pub, the wider public well, would. Well, except maybe you'd, I mean, maybe you'd have to weight that slightly differently in that I'd imagine, I mean, look, Tory members aren't necessarily uh, reflective of the public at large anyway. They are, as we've seen, they're, 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 they're older, they're more inclined to be middle class, they are probably better educated. For the, so, so if 56% of them believe that Islam is a threat to, 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 to British life, um, maybe maybe that's a bigger deal. Yeah. And the fact they're choosing, they are the ones choosing the next Prime Minister. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What do you make of this, David? Well, I mean, there's a problem with uh, such a skewed demographic in any case. Um, uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, at my first job at a programme called Weekend World, which was a Sunday lunchtime politics programme. And we used to figure as far, uh, we used to follow as far as we possibly could our viewing figures and so on. and we had a much older demographic than usual. And one of the things that was really interesting was as soon as we did a programme about education, the figures dropped dramatically. There is a problem with the investment quite often that older voters have in the future or their kind of attitudes towards the future. It's not a generalisation. You know, of course, it's not true. There are lots of wonderful grandparents are concerned for their grandchildren, etc. But you can't help thinking that in the context of, let's say, the future of the economy and so on, what you can get by a kind of wealthier, done it all, seen it all, been through that, comfortable now, thank you very much, is that, frankly, it doesn't impact upon them as, as it will mm-hmm. upon everybody else. And so when they come to vote and when they come to make choices, effectively for the governing party, which therefore becomes choices on behalf of that much wider demographic of, of the country itself, 
it is very, very unrepresentative, hugely unrepresentative. Now, what used to happen was that MPs, when they were trying to make a decision about leadership, etc., obviously they'd partially be thinking about who's going to give them a job and so on and who was more likely to. But one of the calculations they were making was how this would play and how it would represent the interests of a wider demographic that they would have to appeal to in the country. Tory party members don't have to do that. Mm. And actually, it looks increasingly like party members don't do that. They look at somebody who is most congenial from their ideological position and set of prejudices. There's also, Catherine, a slight sense for me that Boris Johnson is sort of an old person's idea of a young person's (laughs) fun person. (laughs) (laughs) All the young people will like all that, won't they? The young people will like like, all that. um, Yeah, Donald Trump was a a poor person's idea of a rich person. Um, yes, he has he has a comedy value. I mean, you, you, if you looked at the polling sort of earlier on, was wasn't the people's favourite? If you um, looked across the country, but wasn't Rory Stewart doing quite? Rory Stewart was what, much he, he, more popular with the, more of a Heineken. But then I suppose that was a total <laughs> misunderstanding of how a leadership contest works. Yeah. Being Indeed. popular with the people who aren't choosing the leader is. Suggest a lack of strategy. Worth, it was a worth a shot, presumably. Yeah, 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 a fun <laughs> couple of weeks. There would, have been, um, there would have been a lot of people who would have thought of him, thought, I mean, even among the public generally, who would have thought of him very fondly while not voting for him. Yes. I think. Yes. So, um, so yeah, I mean, but these leadership contests always throw up. I mean, Ian Duncan Smith became the leader of the mm. Conservative Party. That's when that. I realised I didn't understand politics anymore. <laughs> this was a long time ago. I thought I called them all right up until Ian Duncan Smith and then they did something as stupid as that and you thought, no, I've lost track of this. Well, in fact, in one of the YouGov polls of Tory members now, <clears throat> asked about all Tory leaders in the last hundred years... Ian Duncan Smith was ranked as the fourth favourite. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yeah, in the last hundred years. Yeah. Wow. But um, um, I mean, if- I can't remember the full details, but it was. I mean, it was sort of like Churchill, uh, Thatcher, uh, Ian Duncan Smith. Ian Duncan Smith. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you look at this sort of big picture, right? You have you have the the Labour Party's anti-Semitism problem, which is member-led. You have the Tories' Islamophobia problem. Which is member-led. Sure, in both these cases, the MPs are doing their bit. Let's not, let's not, you know, let's not pretend they are. But basically, it's member-led. It's led by the membership. You go up to Scotland. You have the SNP who have a cybernet problem among their membership. The Lib Dems. We don't hear a lot about their members, but I've been to Lib Dem, Lib Dem conference and they're weird, right? And so basically, you <laughs> they're have sort of nicely weird, though. What kind of weird? Well, they're kind of. Um, I'm trying to think if I can say this in an acceptable way on the radio. Uh, <laughs> They're kind of like you haven't managed it so far. Your, your, your classic, your classic senior Lib, Lib Dem kind of sort of member mm-hmm. is like the kind of he's the he's the younger brother of the Tory chairman who wears sort of jaunty waistcoats and has has had a hell of a lot of wives. You know, they're they're just they're they're just weird. There's a lot of beers. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of sandals. There's a lot of aggressive liberalism. Yeah, and then when um, you come to the men, it's worse. I mean. It's- <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, I mean, at least we are being empowered. We've been, I think, we've been sort of fairly rude about everyone. It's not, yeah, no one look, can assume us being there are, there, are, there are normal members of all the, there are majorities yeah, of normal members of all these parties. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, most Lib Dems are fine when you get to know them. Um, really, most most of them are fine. But, but the people, you, the people, paid up members who who take an enthusiastic interest in leadership contests turn up to party conference yeah. or engage in their local. Constituency association selection process. They are the we- they are the sure. the, the proper well, weird. Isn't joining a political party actually really quite a weird thing to do? Yes, yes, I think it yes. is. But, but but the point is, you have you have you these. Em- now, David, you're you're not. <laughs> 
I think we've discussed before, haven't you? You're... No, I'm not. In the, I, I was in the Labour Party for a while. My first party that I was a member of was the, British, the Communist Party of Great Britain. Bracket Euro Communist Liberal branch. <laughs> uh, I hasten to add, um, not like um, the people that Seamus Milne hang around with, which was non-Euro Communist tanky branch splitters um, yeah. <laughs> wreckers and splitters and put glass in the workers butter and stuff um, uh, so I, I'm not against party affiliation I mean the trouble is something can happen in party affiliation Hugo's absolutely right most people are, are, are decent people actually some of them are really great people because they're uh, you know they give up of their time and effort yeah, and so on in order to do things that, uh, that they think will help get you a better, better society but you also do become peculiar uh, and you become peculiar peculiar in a partisan kind of a way so there will be liberal democrats who believe that their party is somehow or other uniquely donated by god to the people and has extraordinary properties and so on and what you actually need at the moment is a liberal democratic party which says we have unexpectedly come into a position of leadership of the center and mm -hmm. center left in britain uh, let's be incredibly ecumenical and kind to everybody else and bring and help bring them together but right but i mean this is my point is that you have all these parties that are increasingly empowering their memberships are increasingly devolving decisions to their memberships Labour's done it the Tories have done it Lib Dems have probably done it I haven't been paying attention um, and, well, no, and everything is they can't do anything without holding a special well, sure, conference the, the, and a vote and they did it years ago committee. but and as, as we get into a sort of politics basically the politics of cooperation and, and coalition and we're going to have lots of little parties that need to make compromises that need to do weird stuff and strike agreements that you really can't have a long tail of 100,000 people wagging around behind you all the parties are going to have the same problem and the same problem is going to be their members and it is the problem i mean it's a bit like when people say oh, what, what, why does anybody give money to a political like a donor give money to a political party? why do you become a member you either do it because you agree with what the party's all about and the direction it's going in and you just want to support it and you think that you should you know it's there to be supported or are you doing it because you want to get inside it and turn it around and twist it so that it agrees with you and if you've got 100,000 200,000 400,000 people all trying to twist it to what so that everyone agrees with you that's how you end up with a massive internal conflict what what we're seeing tends to happen is that people tend to take on the character when they declare an allegiance and a partisanship to a party they will then take on the characteristics that seem dominant in that party as if they had believed in them all along <laughs> it's a very it's a very odd thing you see it amongst republicans you see it amongst conservatives you see it amongst labor party people that's my party and therefore the leader of the party must be the best leader of the party there is therefore i now believe what he says rather than the set of things that the previous leader says well i'm glad we've sorted all that out like we've, we've completely sorted out everything that's going on in um, British politics and American politics. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you get that special episode later this week. Subscribe to my morning email, thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And from there, you can find all the links to tickets for my tour, which are selling fast, I think is the official line. My huge thanks again to uh, David, uh, Catherine, and Hugo for me, Matt Jolly. It's goodbye. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.